ask you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, or you're welcome to follow along with me in your bulletins as I read just two verses for us uh, this morning. Up to this point, and for us over the past month or so now, Peter has been using a very specific form of instruction in which he takes concrete situations, concrete spheres of life, and addresses for us how we are to comport ourselves, how we are to conduct ourselves in an honorable way in these various spheres that exist in this world. And what I tried to show us along the way is that while he holds out three very specific, very concrete examples for us, the application of the principles that are contained within those examples are in no way restricted to those exact things, but we can cross-apply those to the many circumstances of life. And now that, that reality that you can apply this out from those particular spheres is made abundantly clear in the verses that are before us today. He here addresses the entirety of the church. He says, finally, all of you. So if any of you thought that this might not apply to you, here he goes, finally, all of you. Now, for those of you who don't know, we've got a Texas contingent here in the church. Uh, the Richards and a couple of other families, uh, Holt and Hattie, are, are Texans, and then some others as well. You guys are Texans too, all right? So what I really wanted to call the sermon today is all y'all, right? That's the, the plural form of y'all is all y'all listen up because this is what Peter has to say. Let me read these two verses for us that really get at the core of our Christian character and our Christian values as we interact with people who are around us. This is the living word of the living God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us, your people today, to hear exactly what we need to hear from this text, that we would understand these words as you intended them for your people and that you would allow us the joy of seeing them to play, play out within our community, this community, the church, and within our interactions with the world around us as well. Help us, Lord, to hear your word well today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin our sermon with something of a preamble to the text that I have just read. And the fact of the matter is the preamble that I want to use this morning is actually something that we've already read together. In fact, it's something that you have already confessed. I'd like to draw the preamble uh, from the call to worship this morning and what you said specifically. It was out of Psalm 145, and what you read and confessed in that is verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
I responded to that with the following verse, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. That confession, those words that you read, that you confessed, is a confession that has been made by generation after generation after generation of God's people. That's what it says, right? Verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another. They shall declare your mighty acts. And so what we just did, together with the ancient Israelites, together with the ancient church of Jews and Gentiles, and together now as the people of God, is we confessed this character of God. We confess together that God is these things, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that he is slow to anger, because this, of course, is how God has revealed himself. It's not something that we made up. It's not something that Israel made up. It is how God answered Moses when Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, I will show you my glory in my graciousness. I will show you my glory in the mercy that I display in this world. And from that point onward, from that point in Exodus chapter 34, it becomes a confession for Israel. It becomes a statement of faith for the people of God to identify God as he has revealed himself in that way. Understand it correctly. With respect to our sin, the Lord is gracious. Okay? The Lord is gracious towards our sin. He has made a way for us in his son Jesus to be forgiven and to be adopted as his children. He has made a way for us in his son Jesus that through faith in him, we might be counted righteous. That the righteousness of Jesus Christ would be credited to us. God is gracious. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. With respect to our misery in this world, we're in a, in a state of sin and in a state of misery. With respect to our misery in this world, God is merciful. God sees our distress and our pain, and he is moved to compassion and to comfort and to bind up the wounds, to bring the lost back into fellowship and communion with him, apart from our meriting any of that mercy, any of that compassion at all. And so God is gracious with respect to our sin. God is merciful with respect to the misery that we experience in this world because of that sin. And God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger, or to say it the other way around, God is patient. God hasn't destroyed us in a moment as our sins deserve. We didn't deserve to continue after Adam and Eve had partaken of the fruit we didn't deserve to continue as the people of God when Israel had sinned at the golden calf. We don't deserve another day apart from the grace and the mercy of God. But he is slow to anger. He's slow to anger in his graciousness and mercy. He has stayed the application of judgment, 
the application of his anger so that he could show to us his loving kindness and show to us his goodness, show to us his blessedness, his steadfast love. He is patient with us so that in seeing the mercy, in seeing the kindness of God, we might be led to a change of heart, to repentance. The Lord is gracious and merciful, and he is slow to anger, and his mercy is over all that he's made. Okay? Over everything that he's made, his mercy is there. His mercy in general is over all. And it's overall, whether, frankly, it is recognized and appreciated or not. It is experienced by all, whether they recognize it as the hand of God or not. Our very existence and all of the goodness that we experience, even in a world that's full of misery, the friendships that we experience, the family that we experience, the sense of that which is beautiful, the sense of the fact that there is justice in the world, all of these things are evidences of the kindness and the mercy of God that are over all things. The fact that we eat and enjoy and have some pleasures in life, it's over all whether it's recognized or not, but in particular. But in particular, it is out of love and mercy that the Father sent his Son, and we have been saved by that mercy. That mercy isn't just a general mercy that's over everything. It's a mercy that finds concrete expression in the sending of Jesus Christ into this world for us, free and undeserved. Paul says it this way in Titus 3. In Titus 3, Paul says, he saved us, God. He saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Why did God save us? How did God save us? Through Christ, according to his own mercy. And Peter begins this letter in exactly the same way. Back in chapter 1, when he launched into the letter after the greetings, verse 3, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The mercy of God is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The fact that you are born again, the fact that we are partakers of it, all of it flows out of the mercy of God according to his great mercy. In mercy, the Father sent his Son. The Son embodied the mercy of the Father for us. The Son of God shed his mercy on us so that we are now the people who once had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. Do you remember that verse? I'm quoting from 1 Peter there. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. The very end, the very summation of all that Peter has said about the people of God, about the work of Christ. He said, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. You've received these things. And he climaxes all of it by saying, you are the people who once had not received mercy, and now you are the people who have received the mercy of God. 
God has been good to us. God has been gracious and merciful to us, and that brings us to our passage that is before us today. Here, Peter is urging us in the verses that I've read for us to take the mercy which we have received and to become, in our stead, a distributor of mercy. To take the mercy that's part of us through Christ and to be a distributor of it. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's the beatitude. Blessed are those who show mercy, who are merciful, because they are the ones who are going to receive mercy. A man came to our Lord, and he asked about the law of God. Teacher, tell us, what are the great commandments? And Jesus says, you know the commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this man, when Jesus was explaining that to him, said, that well, that seems like a good answer, but he was looking for a way to justify himself, to wriggle out from underneath of the commands of God and all of their rich vastness. And he said, so who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell him the story that we know as the story of the Good Samaritan. And he comes to the end of the story, and Jesus asks to the man, who's the neighbor? Who is the neighbor? The man said, he's the one who showed mercy. The neighbor is the one who showed mercy. And here's the command of Jesus that belongs to that man who asked a really bad question at a really bad time, and every single one of us. Great. You got it. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. He showed mercy. You go and be merciful to the world. And so the instruction here for us is in verses 8 and 9. The application of mercy to the neighbors who are around us. And basically you've got two groups of people that are addressed here. In verse 8, the application of mercy to the church to the communion of the saints, to us as we're gathered together as a particular community. And verse 9, these aren't exclusive, but this is pretty much the best way to understand it. Verse 9, the application of mercy when you get outside the walls of the church, when you're with other people, just interacting in the world, in the communities where you live and work. The presupposition might be something like this. Peter recognizes that receiving mercy is really great. It's really a wonderful thing. Who doesn't want to receive mercy? Showing mercy, on the other hand, giving mercy, being merciful is a different story. You've heard it said a number of times, but it always hits home. When the police officer stops me or sees me speeding, I really want mercy for me. But I do not want mercy for the guy who passed me and cut me off when I was speeding. I don't want mercy for him. I would like to experience mercy. I would prefer not to extend mercy. And so we then turn with Peter here to the community of the church. He says, finally, all of you. As I said, Peter's been working through very specific cases of structured relationships that exist within society. But now he turns to the community of the church And there's a leveling that exists that mercy has both revealed and accomplished, a leveling that exists within the church. Peter, just to be clear, Peter appreciates church structure as with these other structures of society. 
Peter himself is an apostle, and uh, Peter was part of the, uh, the apostles, as they said, listen, elect men from among yourselves to serve the tables, those who will become the deacons in the church. And later in this letter, he's going to address the elders of the church, and he's going to say to those who are younger, be subject to the elders. But this is an authority within the church that doesn't look, it shouldn't feel authoritarian. Why? Why within this community does that start to fade into the background? It's because within this community, there is a leveling agent, okay? a leveling agent. A leveling agent is a chemical substance added to paint to enhance its thickness and uniformity. In the church, there's a leveling agent. There's an emulsifier, an agent that acts to stabilize, preventing liquids that ordinarily wouldn't mix and would want to pull pull apart from one another. An emulsifier keeps those things together. And there is in the church a leavening agent. So a leveling agent, an emulsifier, and a leavening agent here, leavening in the best sense. There is something in the church that lifts all of us up together. That doesn't go and pop some up here and there, but instead lifts all of us up together. We have all been mercied. Every single person in here, we are mercy people. None of us in this room deserve anything that we have. Not one of us deserves a particular place or a particular status or a particular membership or any position here. We are all of us, all of us, every single one of us in this room, from the oldest to the youngest, all of us are here for, at the end of the day, one reason and one reason only, and the reason is God showed you mercy. That's the only reason you're here. God showed you mercy. There's no exceptions to that. It levels us all out. We're all, to put it in another language, they are all debtors of grace. And that's why we're here together. But Peter, Peter is fully aware of an old proclivity, an old bent that exists in our hearts towards judgmentalism, towards animosity. After all, Peter was one of the ones who was willing to say, Lord, these other guys, they may leave you. I'll never leave you. I'm the man. You can count on me. Peter was part of the disciples who were arguing amongst one another to see who was the greatest. Who's the one who stands out the most? Peter gets it. Peter gets that in addition to these really great qualities that we're going to look at here in just a moment, there's something else that is at work within us. And therefore, to instruct us in the mercy, he has to make it specific for us. And so he gives us here... uh, I don't know, you can call it the ethos of the Christian family. He gives here the ecosystem, is essentially what this is, the ecosystem of the Christian life lived in relationship to other, and he has five characteristics of it. Five ones, and I just want to look at each one of them briefly. Five characteristics. The first one is have unity of mind. Have a like-mindedness that characterizes you. This is a unity that is grounded in Christ, and it is expressed for us in a common confession of the faith that leads to a common attitude of the heart and a common ethic that we all agree that given the fact that Jesus Christ is this, 
It makes us realize that this is how we should live our lives. This is how we should feel about one another. This is the very idea that Paul is working through when he's in Philippians chapter 2. The language is almost identical here to what Peter is saying. Listen to how Paul says it. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And this unity of mind immediately leads to the ethic because he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He became obedient. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Paul is talking about unity of mind, and he takes us up to the heights of Christ and says, this is who your Christ is. Christ is the one who took a humble position, who had humility, who took the form of a servant. That becomes our confession, and out of that confession flows, flows the attitude of counting others more important than yourselves and the actual work of being the ethic of being united with others and of serving others. It is the common confession that we share that unites us together and then leads us into mission. And the confession, to say it in another way, to say it in an Old Testament way, is the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. We say that together and the ethic of our life together flows out of that. Unity of mind. The next one is sympathy. Sympathy is caring about the needs and the sufferings of others. It's feeling with another. It's the ability, however complicated it is, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to rejoice with Ethan and Clarice, to mourn, to weep with those who weep, to weep with Wendy, to weep with Lauren, That's the sympathy that we are called to here. The third characteristic is brotherly love. Mercy is expressed in unity of mind. Mercy is expressed in sympathy. It's expressed in brotherly love. Peter's already talked about brotherly love in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. And even in the section that we just finished, verse 17 of chapter 2, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Yes, honor belongs to everyone. In particular, though, the love of the family of Christ is here. We've been born again into this family. This is how you channel the love. This is how you direct the love in particular. I asked Joel earlier this week if any of his family was going to be here for uh, the baptism, I knew the answer to that, and the answer was no. And I said, Joel, we got it. We got it. We are your family. We're your family here, united in Christ. Not that the other members of the family aren't the members of the family as well. But we're your family, and we'll stand in in that position and take the vows along with you. Brotherly love. The fourth characteristic that Peter articulates here is having a tender heart. That is to say, we are a compassionate people. 
that we express our mercy and our forgiveness to one another. Paul says it this way. It's on the front of your bulletins. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. To have a tender heart is to have something that is the opposite of being indifferent to the people who are around you, of not knowing the people who are around you, not caring about them. And the last quality that Peter then gives here is having a humble mind. It's humility, it's kindness, it's even courteousness. Last week, as you recall, in the sermon where Peter was addressing wives, he had commanded them and talked about the beauty, the internal beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And I noted that those are not uniquely feminine characteristics, that the word gentle is the word that Jesus applies to himself, saying, I I am gentle and lowly, and this is the second word that Jesus applies to himself. This humility, this word derives from the same word there. Peter is saying to us, in other words, in other words, as a community, you, we should put on the attitude of Christ with respect to one another. Those are our mercy-driven norms. Within this body, we express mercy towards one another after the pattern of Christ according to these five things that are right here. And then verse 9 applies this same thing to outsiders. This is perhaps the most unique, the most challenging ethic, one of the most well-known ethics of all of Scripture that is expressed in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called. It's spread out all over the New Testament. Jesus said it this way, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. In the front of your bulletin, another of the Beatitudes is quoted there. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other kind, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Stop and think for a moment. Do you really feel that? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe when people are saying things about you that you go, wait, I'm blessed. I'm blessed in this. Jesus says, you're blessed, rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul in Romans 12 verse 17 says it this way, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. The call, generally speaking, as we've talked about, is the call to live in an honorable way. And if you're going to live in an honorable way, then you do not return evil for evil. Paul says it this way about himself and his ministry in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And it's exemplified for us in so many great places in Scripture. And I think, as Nick said, one of the most preeminent for us is in the story of Joseph. That's a story kind of in the house of God 
and kind of outside of the house of God as well as it might have ended up. Where Joseph has every opportunity to return the evil upon their heads. To vindicate himself and to say, oh, by the way, you put me down here? Let's see how you do with this. And he doesn't. Instead, he takes the opportunity to bless. He says, you, you did this. You put me here. But God is the one who was behind all of this. And now, I bless you, my brothers. Stephen was one of the first men martyred for the faith, one of the deacons who was elected. And when he had given testimony to his faith, they were stoning him. And with his last breath, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's blessing. That's, that's the blessing. Lord, don't hold it against them what they are doing right now. And most clearly and most immediately for Peter's purposes, it is seen for us in the suffering of Jesus Christ. The suffering of Jesus Christ was our salvation and it was our example as well. Verse 23 of chapter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter now says, all y'all, in case you missed that, that means you. In case you justified yourself saying, wait, I'm not any of the categories that Peter just said, all of you all, that belongs to you. When you're reviled, don't revile back. Don't return it. When it seems like the retaliation is justifiable, the call of the word of God is this. The Lord our God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. And thus, our calling is to operate contrary to the passions that exist inside of us and to endure. To endure. To entrust ourselves to the Lord. To leave it to the Lord. He will resolve these things that seem to you to be unjust and are unjust. He will take care of it in his timing. It does not belong to you. Instead, we are to do good. And not only are we to do good, which is what we saw in chapter 2, in addition to doing good, we are to bless. And to bless in this context means to pray. It means to pray for the people who are persecuting you. It means to say and to remember the Lord, the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. And it's to take that and to pray and to bless it upon the person who is persecuting you and say, Lord, be that to them. Be that to them. We've been called to that. It's not accidental. It's not incidental. It's our calling that has been given to us, right? To this you were called. This is the second time he has said exactly this. Verse 21 of chapter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
You're called to it. It's the calling that you have. It's not just a reaction. It's the calling. The Father showed mercy. The Son showed mercy. The Spirit of God is at work in us that we might go and do likewise. Go. Do likewise. And when we do this, and we're not pretending, I trust that there's not a person here who thinks this is easy, who thinks that in the saying that we should be merciful, it is therefore somehow easy to be merciful and not to be resentful, vengeful, spiteful against others who have done wrong to us. When we do this, we are, in fact, embodying the gospel. We are embodying the mercy of God before the world unto, God willing, their salvation, their change of heart. I alluded to this passage earlier. It's found in Romans chapter 2 where Paul says, do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? All of the kindnesses that we experience in this world, all of the things that taste really good and really delicious in this world, they are meant to lead us to repentance. And they can do that because God is patient. God is not bringing the weight of our sin upon us in full, in total. He is delaying that. He's restraining that so that we can see the mercy of God. And when you then enact, embody mercy before the world, you are being used by God to embody and enact exactly the qualities that belong to him. That's what's happening. With the great hope with the great hope that it will lead people to repentance, that it will lead them to faith. And so we close then with what Peter closes with. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. The blessedness of God is his happiness, his joy, in the perfection of all of his attributes as they are on display when we embody the attribute of mercy, we're borrowing a ray of light from God, and we will be blessed in so doing. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You are the people of God who've already received mercy. And to you, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, both now and in the life to come. You've heard the saying, it's often with respect to Abraham and the promises that were given to Abraham, that we were blessed to be a blessing. Well, if you added this passage to it, we are blessed to be a blessing and receive a blessing. Because this actually turns out to be, in the Spirit of God, an ecosystem. Blessed to be a blessing, to receive a blessing, what do you want to do with it? Bless. Bless. That's what you're supposed to do with it. That's what the text says, right? Bless. To this you have been called to bless. May God work in us these expressions of mercy and love into all of our hearts within our community and as we engage with the world. Let's pray.
Lord, we do pray that you, Spirit of God, would be working these things out in us, that you would help us to walk in the steps of Christ, that your kindness, your mercy would be shown in our lives as we interact with others. We acknowledge to you, as we've already done in this service, our failings at this. Every one of us knows them, Lord. Forgive us, be merciful to us, strengthen us so that we can demonstrate and show and dwell in your mercy and be a blessed people as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen.